Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Start as always by thanking our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to subscribe and get extended episodes each and every week, plus lots of other goodies as well. In fact, this week there is over half an hour of extra conversation for Patreon supporters. So if you are an Armando Iannucci fan, it is definitely worth signing up because this week's episode is a special episode that was recorded at the Slapstick Festival earlier this year, where Robin spoke to Armando in front of a live audience about the state of satire in 2022. Armando's latest book is Pandemonium, some verses on the current predicament. That is out now in hardback. They don't really get around to talking about it in any detail, but it is obviously all about the sort of things that they do talk about. Elsewhere in the Shambles universe, Nine Lessons for Spring, the rescheduled Christmas shows, are coming up on April 16 and 17 at King's Place. Tickets are available for that now. Two nights of science and music and comedy hosted by Robin with Helen Chersky and Matt Parker and Jim Bob and Miranda Lowe and Lucy Green and all sorts of other people. CosmicShambles.com slash Nine Lessons. Uh, and also we've announced a new series this week, CosmicShambles.com slash Making Tracks which is a sort of year-long travel series about science and culture all around the world, hosted by journalist Simon Patterson. You can go to cosmicshambles.com slash making tracks to find out all about that. And just before we start, as mentioned, this was recorded at the Slapstick Festival, a festival we are always at each year doing different events. You can find some podcasts from the festival on the Shambles site from events we've done over the years with Stephen Merchant and the goodies in what uh, turned out to be, very sadly, one of Tim Brooke Taylor's last live events. All of that is on the Book Shambles and uh, podcast and the Cosmic Shambles website, so check that out. And uh, go to slapstick.org.uk to find out more about the festival. Anyway, enough from me. Remember, bumper extended episode this week for Patreon supporters uh, where Armando talks uh, in depth about... Uh, Death of Stalin and Thick of It and a few other bits and pieces that have been cut out of this version. Patreon.com slash bookshambles. Now here is Robin and Armando. I don't think it's going to get better than that. We should leave. Um, This is how Nuremberg started. (laughs) Some of them happy with that idea. Um... (laughs) We'll get, we'll, we'll get straight in and, in talking about... Because last night, when I first saw you last night, the first reaction to the world is... I don't know how to deal with it. I don't know how to deal with the fact that, as we were talking about, we seem to have uh, you know, a government where many of those involved are beyond parody. Yes. And really, ever since, you know, someone like Pretty Patel, what can you do? What can you it? do? It's, yeah, and... and I, I know what I, I know what you can do with Pretty Patel, but what can you do with Pretty Patel? Yeah, I know it is weird. It's it's sort of 
you know, shows like um, Yes Minister and the thick of it and so on are all sort of predicated on the fact that yeah, there are set of rules by which the, the country is governed and what we're doing is shining a little light onto how those rules might be bent slightly and twisted and how words might be missing. But if, if there are no rules, you know, if, if Donald Trump says, as he did, I could shoot a guy in the face in the middle of Fifth Avenue and still get elected. Or if um, under Boris Johnson there was a minister who got up and said, we are breaking international law, but, law, but only in a very limited and specific way. Um, <laughs> Then, then there are there are no rules, you know. And if you have someone who doesn't believe in the truth, I'm not saying that's Boris Johnson. This is a hypothetical figure. If you have someone who doesn't believe in the truth or law, um, then 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 where where are you? You know, I it, I, I don't think we could have invented in, in something like that. I don't think we could have invented a character who walks into a garden, sees lots of wine and cheese and people going, yay, and doesn't know it's a party, <laughs> and stays there for about 25 minutes, and even at the end of that still hasn't worked out, it's a party. That's, that's very first draft, goes in the bin, you know, we'll, <laughs> we'll rewrite that, you know, we'll make it one minute or something, and then he leaves, you know. So, so, so that's right. So, and, and I think... Also, the other thing I've noticed is that a lot of these people are themselves entertainers. I mean, Donald Trump is an entertainer. He's, he's obsessed with um, ratings. Mm. That's all he's interested in. The poll numbers, the viewing figures, the number of people that were at his inauguration. And, 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 and similarly, Boris Johnson is a kind of an entertainer. So they're the comedians. They're the, um, Boris Johnson is a self-basting satirist. That's what he is. Well, that, I was thinking... Did you, don't Discuss. Know, was, <laughs> <laughs> um, Jonathan Coe wrote a piece quite a, a few years ago, mm -hmm. I, I think, in, in the uh, uh, literary review. So it might have been London Review of Books. Mm -hmm. And he said about the fact that Boris Johnson, the moment he worked out the character that would sell... And he, he, it, this, this was about 15 years ago he wrote this yeah. article. He said, there was a moment on Have I Got News For You... Yeah where up to that point, and it's incredible the short memory that we have as human beings, which is I think most people now remember Boris Johnson as always at least projecting this kind of, you know, first draft P.G. Woodhouse character yes. that's then binned. <laughs> and yeah. then, but that has now become him. You know, there was a moment where he did the tousled hair thing, yeah. looked a bit sheepish, got a big laugh, and Jonathan yeah. Coe says, you can actually see in his yeah. eyes going, oh, I can, this is the character I can do. I can rule the world with mm. this. Yes. And then when he does get to rule the world or the country, he talks about Mr. Blobby. Or he goes to the United Nations to talk about uh, climate change and he talks about Kermit the Frog. I mean, so the two, the two, you know, the cartoon figure is both a front and also the substance. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's the depressing thing. So there is someone there who knows what he's doing, but at the same time isn't aware that what he's doing is truly awful. You know, so, and that's, 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 the, that's the dilemma we have to tussle with. But, it's, it's, I mean, in, in the 21st century, it seems to have moved very, very quickly because it, with George W. Bush, there was a, a period of time where I think, unfortunately, a lot of people wasted the opportunity to satirise him by just talking about 
you know, sentences and poor use of, of language as opposed yeah. to actually... But already now, George W. Bush, who, who was seen as, as such, you know, the, 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 the monstrous nature of him, yes. now, by 2019, people are going, he seems all right, he's, he's quite an right, actually. figure. Because now yeah. we've got this Donald Trump... Yeah. And, and the, the, yeah. that speed of I monstrosity. Liked, yeah, he invaded Iraq for no reason, but, you know, that aside... <laughs> he was fine, you know? Um, there, yes, there is that. And that's, that's what's happened, I think. You know, it's, we, we've actually crossed the line <laughs> where, where, where there's no going back either, you know, because you know, my fear is not, you know, Donald Trump again, but a smarter Donald Trump, you know, mm. someone smarter and younger, seeing what Donald Trump did, thinking, well, it worked, and he was an idiot. I'll do that, but I'm a bit smarter. That's mm. the thing that I worry about. And similarly, you know, Boris Johnson is t sort of taking the, the Trump playbook, uh, and, and trying to make it a little bit less, you know, obvious. But, you know, he's bringing in voter ID cards because, of course, there's massive corruption in every election we have in this country. We all know that. Everyone knows that. Everyone knows that. It's there, you know. The elections have all been stolen, so we have to have these ID cards now. You know, so he's stealing, he's stealing rules from the Republican playbook here. But once that starts, you know, once you start... Um, and it's happening in, 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 in all sides as well, you know, Political parties used to be broad churches, broad coalitions, where people, you know, united in a party, but knew they had slightly different opinions. But that's not been the case now, you know. So, so when Boris became party leader, he got, he not just didn't appoint anyone who didn't believe in Brexit, he expelled them from the party. And, and similarly, you know, Corbyn comes along and gets rid of the Blairites, Starmer comes along, gets rid of all the Corbynistas. So we've lost that sense of a political party being a kind of broad church where, where you know, compromise is possible. And it's now all about the leader's worldview. And you have to, if you don't believe in that in total, you can't be part of that power group, really. And that is the problem because we've lost, I think, this ability to, to converse and to debate and to, you know, to argue civilly but forcefully with someone with whom we disagree, you know, and see if we can come to some kind of possibility of a compromise. Would something like the thick of it... Welcome to the Slapstick Festival, everyone. <laughs> uh, uh, we're looking at comedy through the... Uh, <laughs> um, do you think the thick of it would be... I mean, would you be able to make something like that now? Is it when you get to this difficulty of the fact that some people seem to start from being beyond parody, mm. do you feel that if you were going to start now in 2022 to do a, a comedy based I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a sort of strange... I mean, people ask me that, and I just think it's not a question that's... I don't feel it's relevant as a question because you think of it was a response to whatever was happening at the time. I mean, I made the think of it because uh, I, I was passionately angry about the, Iraq, the invasion of Iraq, you know, Blair in, in conjunction with Bush, and I wanted to know why uh, a prime minister could do such a thing, given that all the experts, even his backbenchers, everyone was saying, what are you doing? This is terrible. How can a prime minister have that amount of power? And so it then led me to look at how does, the, you know, how does it work? How does power work in Westminster and Whitehall? The, the, the office of prime minister, the, the, the way power is centralised there, the way cabinet ministers have become a little less influential, you know, they're now... You know, Attlee and Churchill, they were first among equals, really. They put in place people in, in health and education so on, who just got on with a job because they were good at it. 
Now it's all about all those decisions have to come back to the Prime Minister. So I thought I'd wanted to come up with a show that demonstrated how power worked in, in, in Whitehall, really, and the influence of, you know, the, the, they're called enforcers, these nameless figures that fan out from Number 10 to all the different departments and tell them what they're saying on Newsnight tonight and so on. They sound like the Dementors or something, but there's these enormous... And Malcolm Tucker was meant to be the personification of that, the, the enforcers and so on. But that was about that particular moment. I think now, I'm not even sure a kind of documentary-style, behind-the-scenes, handheld camera dramatisation of what's going on is necessarily the best way of showing what's going on. Interestingly, you know, because, you know... Johnson is the comedian or the entertainer. The most interesting um, comedic take on him is just people reporting back his words. Mm. You know, uh, just just taking his speeches and, and laying them out. And or you get a, someone who, who's slightly more journalistic, like John Oliver, who's got like a whole team of researchers and um, resources to look at archives and to look back at the speeches and so on. I just lay out an argument, really. It's almost like the comedians have become the journalists because the politicians have become the comedians, really. I think you noticed that on Question Time. There was a point on Question Time where the, the most erudite people yeah. would be, you know, if you see Mark Steele yes. on Question Time, I think when... Uh, who was it? Who was uh, the, one of the journalists talks about the fact that the uh, um, illegal drugs trade has something like I think a, a, an advertising budget of thirty trillion pounds. There was one of those things that I think it was Melanie Phillips just suddenly right. made up this enormous yes. figure, and just to look at Mark Steele's face that could no longer <laughs> close for about three minutes, it just yeah. gaping open at just. Yeah. And, and I that. remember the first time I went on Question Time, um, and I was very nervous and. And then you, I, the, the moment I realised I'm a, with a completely different audience was I, I was I wanted to tell something that was a joke. All right, I mean it was related to the topic, but it was a joke, so it needed a setup and then the punchline. But when I set, said the setup, people just went. All <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, right, no, it's I, I, I get it. Okay, I I see. It's it's different here. <laughs> yeah. As we're talking about satire, I suppose the idea of what the purpose is, because there have been, you know, as has been talked about in the past, you know, Germany in the 1930s was a vibrant cabaret and satire scene, mm-hmm. and uh, they did so much to, did stop, so the much to stop the rise of Adolf yeah. Hitler. Alternative yeah. comedy began yeah. in 1979, and yeah. by 1997, the Conservatives were out. Yeah. So <laughs> that yes. Do you ever, when when you have been working on things which have that satirical yeah. element, do you think of its purpose? In, in, in that way, in terms of people's no, attitude I don't, to power. No, I've never thought that. I've never thought that, you know, satire is there to change how people vote or to bring down the... Go- I, you know, you, I think you'd go crazy if you thought that. It's, it's, it's a subtler thing. It's there, hopefully... Something like the think of it, I thought, all right, I had this anger about Iraq, but I didn't want to ro- do a comedy about Iraq. Well, I did in the end, within the loop, but with the think of it... I wanted to do something that wasn't particularly necessarily for one type of audience politically. You know, I thought it would be interesting to show, you know, the public from my research and so on, a comedic take on actually how how government works these days. You know, so in the first episode of the thick of it, where the minister's on the way to make an announcement and and has summoned the world's the Britain's press to a school in Derbyshire to make an announcement, is then told on the phone, you can't, the Treasury's nixed it. 
and he has like 45 minutes in the back of a car to come up with a policy that costs nothing and it will be popular. And, um, and we said something, and we were filming away, and then I said to the cast, because we were literally driving on the way to the location, I said, well, and with the cameras on, I said, do you want to just improvise? And in, they came up with three policies that I put in the programme. Within five years, they had all become law. <laughs> which, which was, um, everyone had to have their own permanent plastic bag, pet asbos, and Chris Addison came up with a national spare room database, <laughs> which became a bedroom tax. And, and you know, the num when the figure went out, the number of, you know, public figures who said this, this is terrible, cynical, you know, government isn't like that, there's lots of people who do good. The, the number of people who've done that have, have been matched by the number of cabinet ministers and former cabinet ministers or ministers who've come up quietly and said, I've been in the back of that car. You know, it's because that's what happens. And it's not, I wanted to show, it's not people being, you're not, they're not evil. They're really not evil, apart from one or two. But, you know, they don't get up in the morning saying, who shall I kill today or who shall I destroy? It's to do with, it's the whole, it, it, it's neither cock up or conspiracy, it's a little bit of both. And also, the way it's set up is, we put so much focus and attention on these people and expect them to deliver 24 hours a day perfectly. And they're absolutely knackered and distracted and have, you know, other agendas going on to do with their own kind of positioning and so on. So that, you know, you think something that must have taken months to research and months to put together, you find out, no, it, they came up with it in the back of a car. Is that a problem as well? I'm thinking about that once you become, you know, you, you, you're, you're noted, you're award-winning, all of these things, which means that you possibly end up on the list to go to the parties mm. where people that you might be turning into character, suddenly they're in the room. Mm. I mean, because it seems to me there is a problem in the UK where there is a tremendous chumminess, for instance, in the media with... Politicians, we were talking about this beforehand. If you yeah. if you watch a lot of kind of UK politicians, if they ever go onto a chat show in the Republic of Ireland, it's a totally different thing, and it's and it's a much more kind of you know yeah, right the, yeah yeah, and and they know how. Whereas yeah. here, there always seems to be a sense that once the cameras are off, everyone's just having a nice chat. Yeah, and it doesn't really matter, and it's all a game. It's all fine. Yeah, I think it's I think it's Rory Bremer who says that he doesn't want to get to know the people he's because you'll discover they're human beings, and they are human beings. And it's not about that. It's not about going, oh, oh, they're actually quite nice. Oh, well, I won't say those things. It's about, it's about how they behave and what they think and <laughs> what they do. You know, it's, that, that's, that's the issue. I mean, I, I remember once going to um, uh, a party. Um, I did a thing for the time, so I was in, invited along to... Uh, was that a Christmas thing? Basically, Rupert Murdoch was there, and therefore I, I went in, and, and it was the most frightening thing I've ever encountered, because I went into this room where everyone you knew off the telly was there, including the cabinet, who were over there, and the shadow cabinet, who were over there. And I lasted 10 minutes. I nearly had, I kind of, um, the bar was over there, and I thought, I'll tell you what, I don't know anyone, what do I do? I'll just slowly walk that way to the bar, as if I'm going to the bar, in the hope I might meet someone that I can chat to. Got to the bar, nothing. So I just turned round and did the same again to get to the front. 
Nobody. I, I didn't connect with anyone. I thought, I'll do one more bar run. I went, <laughs> I went to the bar, and as I was going to the bar, I could see a security guy next to Rupert Murdoch going... <laughs> and, and so I just turned around and just walked out the door and ran as fast as I could because it was the scariest. But I think there is that. I think, you know, and we're finding out now with Partygate, you know, there were journalists there um, uh, at these parties. The, the Prime Ministers appoint journalists to be their kind of communications directors. Uh, they appoint journalists to become senior civil servants. The whole nexus is, is increasingly, you know, confused and incestuous. Um, so, 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 so there's a lot of that that going on yeah but that, uh, that exactly that seems to me to be one of the major problems which is as you said people are you know there are people mm. who are bbc news reporters and all, all around yeah. who are waiting to get the job that's going to take yeah, them yeah, to downing yeah. street yes and to have those relationships yes and the whole system works on you know if you give the you know if you reveal this or do that then you won't get the exclusive that we want to reveal to you i did meet i did in talking of encountering politicians i did do one thing um which uh was um, it was before Tony Blair was elected Prime Minister, so it was the last Labour conference while they were in opposition. And we got a call saying that Tony would like to be interviewed by Alan Partridge <laughs> for a youth rally. And um, every word in that sentence is terrible, isn't it? Is it? So could he do like a 10-minute kind of funny interview with Alan. And we thought, well, I mean, let's give it a go. <laughs> let's give it a go. You know, we were at the time we were sympathetic and, you know, let's, let's try it. So we wrote this, you know, rather good, but quite, you know, bang, 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 rat-a-tat-tat, you know, comedy routine between Alan and um, Tony Blair. Uh, Steve Coogan and I. And, uh, and Steve and I, we went up to Blackpool and um, Peter Mandelson came out and <laughs> saw us. Uh, no, that wasn't a. <laughs> okay, I found your level. Okay. Um, I liked how specific it was to one yeah. corner. Someone yeah. who knows another yeah. story yeah. as well. Because in fact, he did come out and round about. It was yeah. round about 1997, so that that would fit. Yeah. Um, uh, no, but, yeah, Peter Manson, and he, looked, he saw Steve Coogan, he turned to his assistant and said, where's Alan Partridge? <laughs> and, uh, and I could see the assistant kind of going, there's a character played by Steve Coogan. <laughs> okay, okay, anyway, this way. And, um, and we sat down, and this was quite close to the event. This was like, you know, half an hour to go. No sign of Tony. And then um, Tony arrived, a very tall man, um, uh, with Alistair behind him. And, and I'm thinking, this is going to be a disaster because it's quite complicated. The, you know, the back and forth and the, you know, there's puns, there's gags, there's, you know, it's quite well written, you know, if I do it. <laughs> I mean, it was really bloody good material. So, um, and he arrived and, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, thanks, yeah. And, uh, oh, this is it, yeah. Uh, I think this is going to be a disaster. And he was going, okay, uh, joke about the euro, uh, Alistair? Okay, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, joke about Prescott, Alistair? Yeah. Uh, 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 yeah, yeah, lovely, yeah, yeah. Uh, right, and I thought, my God, this is going to be, yeah. Went out, did it absolutely word perfectly, brilliant. 
absolutely brilliant. I mean, just nailed it from start to finish. But the interesting thing was, when he wasn't on, like when Steve was doing his Alan Partridge, so doing his bit, Tony Blair would kind of go like this. <laughs> and then switch back into doing the affable kind of, uh, you know, yeah, I'm just a guy, kind of like, yeah, like that. And then, And, uh, you know, I just thought, this is like, I, I, I don't know where I am anymore. I don't, this is just, he's some kind of strange robot that's, that clearly Alistair has programmed. I don't know. It just was a real eye-opener to me, really. When do you think that started, that, that idea of the division between the person that they, they are and the person that they portray? Because, I mean, I suppose some people might say that, the, you know, the famous Nixon-Kennedy interview where, yeah. you know, where, where Kennedy won just because he looked clean-shaven and he yes. looked smart and there was a kind well, of... Well, I suppose Thatcher did it, didn't she, really? Because when she was uh, elected leader of the Conservative Party, she had quite a high-pitched, kind of quite a shrill voice and she wore big fancy hats. And, and she or someone closer decided she had to change her voice, get rid of the hats and, and change that image. And she did do some voice, you know, rather like Hitler did. I'm not saying, <laughs> but, but there is footage of Hitler doing his kind of, and, and all that, you know. Um, I loved that last one, because that was very much a slapstick. Doh! Doh! You know, that had a, Hitler's going to drop the do. It's just not working. Why <laughs> yada? <laughs> <laughs> if it hadn't been for you pesky Ruskies, I'd have gotten away with it. Um, <laughs> um, Hitler, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, that, so we've done Hitler. Um, <laughs> But well, that just, is, that, yes. I was thinking when you mentioned Thatcher about because, again, seeing the time of trying to put people into to the popular media, because I remember her being on TV Saturday Superstore, uh, yes. being one of the people putting votes in for what was the best band of the day, and her having to have an opinion, <laughs> I think, on Curiosity Killed the Cat. Okay. You know, which, but it was obviously someone had said, we need to get you really into the youth market, you need yeah. to sit next to Mike Reed. Yes. <laughs> My God. Uh, uh, yeah, I know. And, and he, she also appointed an advertising agency, didn't she? She mm. appointed Saatchi and Saatchi to run her, kind of the visuals of her campaign and the, the notorious Labour Isn't Working poster and so on. So I think that... And she appointed Bernard Ingham, who was a very... who was an ex-journalist, as her press, who stayed with her for, I think, 10 years as her press. So it was that, I think that was the kind of... the most obvious start of that packaging of political imagery and you know the leader imagery and to the extent that now as as Jacob Rees-Mogg said last week we we have a presidential system and all about name in that we you know we might vote for the party but we're sort of voting for the leader of the party because the leader of the party and this is the thing with the British constitution not that it exists in writing but in practice a prime minister with an enormous majority can do whatever the hell they like. Mm. Can do absolutely, you know, they can abolish the Supreme Court if they want because they, you know, they brought in the Supreme Court. They can abolish it. They can get rid of this Bill of Rights or they can, they can appoint this person to run Ofcom or, you know, it's, it's extensive power. Lord Hailsham called it a, 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 an elective dictatorship um, in that it's a, a more power in, is, resides in the office of the Prime Minister than it does with the, U the US president, because the US president can be checked by Congress, can't get legislation through, 
if they don't have Congress inside, can be checked by the Supreme Court. We don't have any checks on um, prime ministers here. You know, we have notional discussions and debates and committees and so on. But fundamentally, um, if they want to go ahead with it, they can. Hence, things like Iraq happens and mm. so on. Well, we better have the first. We've got a, a, a bunch of clips. We've got a funny the, clip. Funny clip, funny yes. Clip, yes. So, um, and I think the first one we've got is going to be uh, David Frost and the, and the, uh, the, the Frost Report, which I, su- I suppose that was the week that was... Is that the beginning of... Because we were talking about this beforehand. I yeah. mean, the BBC rules that used to exist and TV rules were, for instance, if you were going to do an impersonation of someone, you had to have written a letter to them and have got permission. Yes. So, <laughs> you know, it was quite hard to be satirical. And then... then yes. Some of the things that... that Writing a letter in itself, is, but it's been an adventure, really, isn't it? You know, to, to take you... In, in, dear, dear Mr McMillan, in seven days' time, I intend to make a joke about you. <laughs> which, which of the following punchlines would be acceptable? Yeah. <laughs> Hello, Keith. Yeah. Let's have a look, then, at uh, um, the Frost Report. First collaborated with the other Ronnie on the Frost Report in 1966. I look down on him because I am upper class. I look up to him because he is upper class. But I look down on him because he is lower class. <laughs> I am middle class. <laughs> I know my place. That's the last 50 years put in two sentences there. <laughs> Well, it's an interesting... Because uh, I was thinking about it with David Frost, because there was someone who both became an establishment figure, yes. but at the same time remained, you know, an interrogator yes, on, on Sunday mornings. And, and that's yeah. an interesting... Again, yeah. an interesting... We were talking before, you know, these incredible summer parties he would have where yeah. you know, people say it would basically be Barbara Windsor, have you met Boutris, Boutris, Gala? You know, that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. You'd like to think that that... You know, that class system that they are portraying there has, has gone now, and it's all to do with, you know, it's, it, it's the culture wars we're having now. But fundamentally, I think we still, for some reason, think that certain people who, who speak confidently must know what they're doing. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And if they don't speak confidently, they don't know what they're doing. And yet the ones who speak most confidently are the ones who end up causing more damage than, than any of the others. And it's a very, it's a very British thing. It, was, I, it struck me when I went to America to do feet how, I wouldn't say classless it is, but how you're not actually judged by your accent or your dialect, really, you know. I think that's a different system where, you know, you're judged by how successful you've been, you know. But if you, you know, if you started off in the Bronx or in, you know, whether it's California or, you know, a, a flyover state of the patronizing, they call them, it doesn't matter. You know, you're not, you're not disregarded if you have a, you know, a broad New York accent or something like that. It's not about that at all. It's about how good are you. Um, whereas here, I think we still, I think, fall into the habit of thinking... Well, he, he sounds like he knows what he's talking about, mm. doesn't he? You know, and 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 you realise, oh no, you know, <laughs> that was the most depressing. The more I did research on things like Thick of It and, and in the Loop in America for you know going into the Pentagon and the um, State Department, the more I realised, no, people are sort of just making it up as they go along, and a lot of the world is run by twenty-four-year-olds who have done politics as a degree 
and then gone straight into become political researchers, you know. So I met when we were researching in the loop, which is a sort of fictional version of the British and American governments invading a foreign country. So it was it was about six, seven years after Iraq, but it was a kind of attempt to uh, portray comedically what happened. And we, you know, we did try and get a lot of it in that we found out. Um, we found out that, you know, the, the, there was a 24-year-old that was sent over by the Americans to help draw up the Iraqi constitution because he'd got a degree in constitutional studies from Georgetown University. You know, 24, telling you how to run a country. Who, you know, he, do, he doesn't know how to run a car. Or, <laughs> do you know what I mean? And there he goes. And, and we found that more and more. We found that, um, what's his name, Donald Rumsfeld, who was the defence secretary, when he was recruiting people to help to take over once they invaded, he'd asked them if they spoke Arabic. And if they said yes, he said, well, you can't go because the fact that you've learned Arabic shows you have pro-Arab tendencies. <laughs> so he, he sort of whittled out the kind of people who could... Now, that sounds fairly comedic, doesn't it? But then when the Americans did take over, there was a whole spate of um, Marines guarding certain border posts and um, telling drivers to stay put. And occasionally some cars would charge towards them and they'd shoot them and they'd end up, it'd just be a family who'd been killed. It's because it took them six months to be, before they were told that in Iraq that means come forward. <laughs> and that was a consequence of Donald R Trump, Donald, uh, Donald Trump, Donald Rumsfeld, um, <laughs> not recruiting enough people who knew the region. Hello, sorry to disturb the conversation. Just to say, you are listening to the abridged version of Josie and Robin's book shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version, then you can support us via Patreon and get all of the other bits of tittle-tattle that dropped out of our mouth. Now, this is a fascinating one because we'll talk about this. We're going to look at Yes Minister, and it, again, it's that fact that here is this beautiful piece of satire which was absolutely adored within Westminster. Yeah. Uh, and we'll talk about that. So let's have a look at uh, this clip from Yes Minister. Then we follow the four-stage strategy. What's that? In stage one, we say nothing is going to happen. Stage two, we say something may be going to happen, but we should do nothing about it. In stage three, we say that maybe we should do something about it, but there's nothing we can do. <laughs> In stage four, we say maybe there was something we could have done, but it's too late now. <laughs> they still stand up, don't they? Mm. And look at where we are now, you know, obviously, you know, there was a party. No, well, there was never a party, you know. Well, there might have been a party, but I was advised there wasn't a party. I mean, I was at a, a thing, but I was advised that what I was at wasn't a party. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, obviously, I'd like to answer that question, but we're now waiting for, for, for Sue Gray's report. Yeah. Um, well, uh, I'd love to show you Sue Gray's report, but unfortunately, the Metropolitan Police have, have stepped in, yeah. and uh, unfortunately, uh, Sue Gray's report has now been redacted. Um, I'm very happy to publish Sue Gray's redacted report, and as you can see from the redactions, there's really nothing in it, so I think, I think the matter... I think, I think we can draw a line under it now, really. Right? Um, and uh, uh, Cressida Dick is now retiring. Um, 
But that, that's in a, well, there's lots of different levels of looking <laughs> at from, from that. that uh, one is that waiting game, which I think we certainly saw with Dominic Cummings and Barnard Castle, which was so many different alibis came out and it just yes. kept playing out and then they got more and more ridiculous. And then apparently then the, the newspapers got bored. And so yeah. it actually yeah, was yeah, yeah. through a kind of element of surrealism that was talked out. I'm reading in the press today, you know, Johnson may be out of the woods now. There's certainly an air of, you know, and it's not, it's just another week has gone by. That's all yeah. that's happened, really. It's just another week and, and, and you know, and everyone's got a life to, to, to get on with. So we're getting on with our lives. But it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, um, you know, it doesn't whitewash the fact that all these things happened. Um, or, or, you know, how he, <laughs> how he attempts to explain how they didn't happen or if they did happen, um, he wasn't involved, or if he was involved, he wasn't involved knowingly, or if it was knowingly, <laughs> it was because he was misadvised, and if he was misadvised, the person who misadvised him wasn't appointed by him, it was someone else. Or if it was appointed by him, then he didn't knowingly appoint someone who would knowingly misadvise him. <laughs> you know? And so, it's, you know, and you can, you know, I can, I can do this for hours if you yeah. want. You know, it's not going to get us anywhere. <laughs> It's just, just kind That's of, a lovely mixture of the civil service and music hall, I think, which is a well, beautiful yeah. thing to watch. But, yeah, but also how supine are the... Yes, the, the, the mainstream media have been very good at breaking all these stories, interestingly. It's, not, it's like the traditional... It's the Telegraph publishing this photo and the ITV News publishing that and so on. So, so hats off to the, the, the so-called mainstream media for doing it. But, but you can't then go, and that's it. You know, you've got to... Follow it up, and I was I was told, um, and in fact I spoke to the person involved who confirmed this is true. There was an inquiry into how Tony Blair had put together the Iraq, the forty-five minute dossier, and was it sloppily put together? Had he misled Parliament, whatever? And Lord Butler, Robin Butler, who had been Chief Secretary to the Cabinet under Thatcher, Major, and, and Blair, was appointed to to launch the inquiry, and it was a proper inquiry, judicial inquiry. And he concluded that there was lots of sloppy evidence gathering, sofa government, just Blair and a few advisors, not, you know, lack of human. And he concluded, being a civil servant, he concluded, he, 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 you know, he, he, he set out where there were flaws, and he was going to do a press conference, and he had decided that if asked by a journalist, should the Prime Minister resign, he was going to say, that's for the Prime Minister to decide which is Whitehall code for yes. <laughs> but I can't say that. So he did the press conference. No journalist asked him that question. And as he was walking off, he thought, hang on a minute. No one's asked the question. Oh, it's too late now. So no journalist had asked the question. He thought if no journalist was going to ask the question, he would have planted the question. But no journalist was going to ask the question. No, no one thought in the media to ask, should the Prime Minister resign? And you know, who knows what might have happened. Um, and, and that kind of, I think, draws attention to a kind of, you know, the way the system... You, you, you talked about it being a game. I think a lot of people... You said a waiting game with Dominic Cummings. It, it, it is a kind of game to a lot of people mm. in that it has a set of its own rules and codes. And, and, and if you just play it well, um, you know, people will approve or people won't approve within the circle in which you play it. But it's, it's you know, to us outside, it's... Looks baffling. Really. Well, I'm interested. Going to, to yes, minister, which is 
how much that would be a reflection of the civil service now. We're seeing this interesting mm. thing, which is, again, kind of social media being used to try and change the story. I noticed the other day a lot of people who had names with many numbers in them on Twitter yeah. were all saying, oh, well, I think the real question is who's leaked the fact there was a party? So it's no longer yes. about breaking the rules. It's that maybe someone's broken the... I think it must have been on GB News or whatever, has yeah. someone broken the Official Secrets Act. And it does seem that the relationship with the civil service and uh, from the outside, but anyway, the and government... Service, has, I think... Perhaps under Blair, I think it started where Prime Minister's new governments coming in have done clear-outs of various civil servants, mandarins, and have put their own appointees in as civil servants. So parts of the civil service are already becoming politicised, as, as in, you know, there are certain people now in place. I mean, civil servants are there meant to be neutral and permanent, really. They're to service whichever government is in power on the basis of their experience. But I think it's become more the norm now for new prime ministers to bring in uh, fresh appointees, really, to try and cast the civil service in, in their image, really. So that's where that, that kind of boundary is starting to become a bit blurred. And what about... If I've got a civil servant lives down the, the, the street from me and he's, he's been his whole career, he's in his yeah. 60s now, and he said he has found it quite remarkable in the last five years because, for instance, after uh, Brexit... He said you would go in every single day and say, do you want us to get these things sorted? And they'd go, oh, I don't think so, no. And it's just this, this inaction. Yes. This, this, if we, again, another waiting game thing. I mean, I think that, the, you know, Barnier in his book where he talks about when, when the EU came in to do the first mm. negotiations and they have all these stacks of, you know, cases filled with documents and David Davies probably hasn't even got his jacket on. Just, I, uh, <laughs> what are we going to do then? You're not brought anything with you? You're all right, isn't it? Well, that's what also worries me, that, you know, that it is just a game. It's all for show. Mm. You know, it's, 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 you know, Liz Truss being photographed in a tank to make, make her look tough. Um, but, you know, I could, you could put a child in a tank and they would look tough because they've got a tank. <laughs> it's not the person, it's the tank. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it really is that simple. Um, See, I'm worried now, because we've seen before about your prescience with various things involving the bedroom tax, carry yeah, bags, yeah, yeah. etc. Put a child when, in a tank. When our toddler leader <laughs> yes. takes over, and Nietzsche's idea again, yeah, was yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. Um, well, this one is, because this is such a, 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 a great film, and I would say in terms of satirical films, mm. one, one of the greatest is, uh, is Doctor Strangelove. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll tell you what, can we have a, we'll have a look at the clip? I'm not sure, what, again, no idea no which idea clip it is <laughs> of Doctor Strangelove. It might actually just be a Clockwork Orange that they show. Uh, we'll find out what it is. Um, but here is Doctor Strangelove. What did you say? I said Premier Kissoff is a degenerate atheist. Mr. Mr. President, I formally request to have signal I think they're trying the number. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Now, I, that, to me, yeah. there's an interesting thing about this, which is that film was basically almost made twice in the same year, which is you have a film called yes, Failsafe, that's right, which is pretty yeah. much that, but it's, it's serious, night, think, and yeah. no-one remembers that, no. and it's not seen as influential. Whereas Doctor Strangelove, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is extremely dark yeah. comedy... Which is why I always think, you know, you're not belittling a subject by making it the subject of a comedy. It's just that comedy allows you to approach a subject in a completely surprising and unexpected way. It allows you to kind of peer behind it a little bit, you know? Um, the, the, the thing I remember from my time 
um, researching both in the loop and, and Veep set in Washington was going around these Washington institutions because they all look from the outside very imperious. I mean, it's Washington's based a lot on, you know, ancient Rome, a lot of the pillars and, you know, the Congress, and it all looks like everyone knows exactly what they're doing. And again, when you go in, they're not. Um, when I, a journalist told me, if you want to go around the State Department, because I thought a film in the loop was based in the State Department, it'd be lovely to see inside, see what it's like. And they said, just say you're from the BBC and you've come for the 12.30. So myself and my assistant, who was about, who was about 12, um, went up to the front rece reception at the State Department and said, hello, I'm from the BBC, uh, we're here for the 12.30. And they said, oh yeah, just come through here. So, and suddenly, with no one with us, we were in the State Department, just wandering around. And I thought, well... You know, my art department back home will probably want some pictures, so I took out my phone and, you know, I thought, this is both fun and possibly international espionage. Yeah. Here we go. You know? And, <laughs> and then uh, a, a big guy came around the corner and went, excuse me? And I said, um, we're here for the 12.30? And he went, oh, it's just over there. <laughs> and, and so we went to Condoleezza Rice's press briefing, you know, which was boring as hell, but, um, and, and, but the thing we noticed was in America they don't like spending money on government buildings because big government is, you know, is terrible, get our back, government off our backs and all that. So everything is just the cheapest possible. So all the chairs in the State Department don't match the tables because they were just bought as a job. So the, the, the tables are there, but the chairs have, have, have arms that are too high, so you can't... <laughs> so everyone is like, everyone's like that. And then for, um, and then we went round the, the, the West Wing because when we, you know, we wanted to set second season of Veep, we wanted to build the West Wing and we thought it'd be good to go around. So we got into contact with um, Obama's body man, who basically his assistant, it was called Reggie Love, who's this extremely tall ex-college basketball superstar. Uh, and you, you wander around the West Wing with your surname. So he wanders around with love written on. <laughs> but he took us around the West Wing. And the West Wing is just this, this warrant of tiny little corridors and so on. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a poxy, just, just, a, just a rabbit warren. Um, but people like to say they work in the West Wing. You know, you can have far more spacious rooms across the road on the, the Eisenhower building. Whatever. But, but we actually saw four-star generals sitting on tiny little stools in a <laughs> with a briefcase and a laptop, and then, you know, because they wanted to tell their wife they work in the West Wing, you know, whereas in fact they could have had an enormous, you know, the, 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 there's, there's that. And, and, and also Reggie Love himself was saying, you know, he, he kept referencing... The TV show, The West Wing. So he'd say, "This is the Eisenhower room. This, the, the, no, this is the Roosevelt room. This would be where uh, CJ and Josh would work." <laughs> and I, I said, "I said, but, but you're him. You're this. This is the West Wing. This. Why don't you say this is where Hillary Clinton would meet with President Barack Obama <laughs> to discuss? You know, and it's like it was a strange kind of." They found it interesting that there was a TV show about them. That, that was much more exciting than what they were doing. You know? 
Let's do the next clip, because we're going to we'll go out to the audience in, in a minute. We've got two, two more clips to have a look at, and the next is uh, the date. Is it 30 years since the date today? It's not far off, is it, I think? Um, it's, no, I tell you what, it's because my, our eldest was born the day after the day today. Uh, so it's 28 years. Right, let's have a look at uh, a yeah. clip from the day today. Yeah. Really? You spoke to him yourself, you managed to pin him down. He's a pretty tricky man, isn't he? That's right. Where did you get hold of him? He was in the hotel. And you conducted a conversation with him about the quota rates. That's right. He said he didn't like it, but he had to go along with it. What language did you conduct this conversation in, Peter? German. You spoke to him about the technicalities of the deal in German? Yes. So what's the German for 30 percent? 30 percent. 30 percent. Yes. And what about that quote you attributed to him? I don't like it, but I'll have to go along with it. That's what he said. How did he say it? I don't like it, but I'll have to go along with it. In German, how did he say it? Ich nichten lichten. Presumably you mean rufen Sie ein Taxi bitte, sonst verpassen meinen Flug. Yes. No, you don't, Peter, because that means get me a taxi, I'm late for my plane. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Did you speak to the German finance minister about the new deal this afternoon? No. And what was his reaction? I don't know. Peter, thank you. <laughs> I mean, that goes back to what I was saying about trying to make it authentic. You know, we, we, we try, we slightly, we don't improvise those, but we, we kind of try and, we, we, we wrote the beats of that and then got them, to, you know, Chris and Patrick to, to do it conversationally so that it sounded like a joke. I wanted it to sound, you know, look as much like a news interview as possible, not two actors and, you know. Uh, and, and again, it was based on, you know, I'm a bad sleeper and, wicked, and there's, there's a bit, especially when John Humphreys was on the Today programme at six o'clock when they can't get any guests in because it's too early. So they get their correspondence on. So I'm joined now by the, uh, you know, our business affairs correspondent. Uh, what exactly did, but, you know, Humphreys, though, has been up since three, so he's, he's ready for an argument, you know what I mean? <laughs> so we just start tearing apart the correspondence. <laughs> well, when are we going to get some explanation? I don't know, John, I don't know. You know? <laughs> it's six in the morning, come on. Uh, um, so, yeah. What I find fascinating, return to the day today in brass eyes, it, it, it is a, a brilliant and incisive parody of the news at the time, but now, in fact, seems to be a huge influence on the way that news is presented. <laughs> Again, your, your evil prescience that you've used to destroy society. Um, so because you've just... All of those things, you would hope the reaction would be, oh, my God, this is what we do. We really we need to change the way. No, As my, opposed to, my that life, is the way to do it. My life has just been a series of failures, really. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing has had any effect whatsoever other than to make people try and emulate yeah. it, you know, in their real life. Um, yeah. And, and this was... I mean, this was 1994. So, I mean, we had CNN then, but we didn't have Fox, really, in all its horrid glory then. So it was the start of the kind of 24-hour news cycle, really. So news was beginning to have that sense of kind of importance where if you... Again, that's what I was saying about, you know, if you sound confident, then people will believe you. I mean, that's fundamentally what the news is, really. It's, it's not people going, I think there might be a war in Ukraine. I, I don't know. It's like pressure is building up on Ukraine. 
possibility of war. You know, that already you think, oh God, where did they get that from? You know, it's, it's, it's to do, it's a performance. <laughs> but, it, it, I, I mean, the day-to-day was also the, 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 the excitement of that. You know, there are certain... I, I don't but know all it was we... was fundamentally a sketch show, but we're trying not to look like a sketch show. <laughs> that, you know, we just all had these... We just liked funny words and funny phrases and, and, and people sounding serious when, in fact, they're saying stupid things, you know. Uh, um, you know, the Bank of England has lost the pound, you know, and now that's... <laughs> all, you know. <laughs> Several of the Queen's eggs held in reserve will now be used as a basis for the next... You know, <laughs> it, it just, and finding footage that matched the, and getting the rhythm of the news. To, to, but it was fundamentally, it wasn't... You know, we didn't have an, a, a, a manifesto about how terrible the reporting of information is. It was just us thinking, what's a funny way of hanging jokes together in a, in a kind of slightly new way? Well, because I, I think some people would say, you know, have imagined that, that Chris Morris was, you know, driven by satire, and yet a lot of people, I'd say, he's driven by absurdism. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, You know, this, the, the yeah. news is the perfect place yeah. to create this framework of, of the absurdity. Yeah, yeah. No, he, I mean, he loves funny, funny work. He always comes up with good names, you know, Iggy Pop Barker. <laughs> Over now to Iggy Pop Barker with the report, you know. And, um, yeah, so uh, I think it was, it, and, and both, interesting, both of us, because we're roughly the same age, and, and when we met, um, I'd, I'd come down from Scotland, joined, joined um, Radio Light Entertainment, was, was put on a training programme to become a producer where you're taught, with lots of other news people and magazine editors and so on, how to do a kind of factual programme. And I thought, well, I don't want to do a factual, I want to do a comedy. So why don't I do like a news programme that is bollocks, but using the news reporter who's on the course and the news editor on the course and so on. And then, you know, that became a thing and it became, you know, the source of a pilot. Chris Morris at the same time was on the radio, on London radio, doing fake news reports. Um, So I just wrote to him and said, do you want to do this show? And we met up. And it turned out we were roughly the same age um, and had the same, same interest in radio comedy. That's what, what we were interested in. You know, we, neither one of us has had a, a stand-up comedy career or, or careers as performers. It's more about growing up loving radio comedy and words, I suppose, just ideas and words and playing about with it. Interested in music as well. He's very musical. And I met him. Um, I met him at Broadcasting House. And he, he'd driven in a terrible, battered old car, and he couldn't park it. So I just got in the car, and we literally drove round Broadcasting House for two hours, <laughs> just, just coming up with the day, coming up with on the hour as it was on the radio in the day to day. And that seems slightly symbolic that we're kind of circling, circling the BBC for two hours, <laughs> well, trying to have a conversation about what we should do. Um, well, we've run out of time. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming down. I think there's another slap Thank event you very much. at about 5.30 with Arthur Smith. Let's hear it from Adi Nucci. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening. Rate, like, subscribe, five stars, Apple Podcasts. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to sign up and support the podcast and get extended episodes each and every week, as well as all sorts of other goodies back next week with another new episode in the meantime take care stay safe and bye for now josie robbins book shambles was produced by trent burton of trunkman productions